I'm Abby Kinney, and you are listening to UpZoned. Hello, everyone. Thank you for listening to another episode of UpZone, a show where we take a big story in the news each week that touches the Strong Towns conversation, and we UpZone it. We talk about it in depth. I'm Abby Kinney. I'm a planner in Kansas City, and today I'm joined once again by my friend Chuck Marone, founder of Strong Towns. We also have a special returning guest with us today, architect and urban designer Kevin Klinkenberg. Welcome, Kevin. Thank you for taking the time to chat with us today. Thanks for having me again. And uh, Chuck, I have to say, you know, as we're recording this, the Royals are in first place (laughs) in the American League Central. And there there are probably going to be very few times when I can say that this year. So I just want to make sure I get it out there. Well, I will still note for the record that I owe you, I, I think it's like a case of something. Yeah. From a couple of years ago, we have a bet, and we haven't actually run into each other since for me to make good on that. But yeah, the Royals are in first place. the The Twins are tied for third, which is also last. Yeah, and uh, the season is young. Yeah, exactly. Well, if this devolves into a sports podcast, I'm going to become <laughs> very unuseful very quickly. <laughs> so let's talk about the article we are covering today. We are covering an article that was published in Slate by Henry Grabar called Good Design is Making Bad Cities, But It Doesn't Have To. He talks about the struggle that we are um, in right now and finding what he calls a third way in the battle between aesthetics and affordability and provides a really good analysis, I think, of the varying perspectives we so often see play out in cities when new buildings are being proposed. Many of us have seen this story where an old decrepit building is being proposed to be demolished and replaced with something new, and this shores up a lot of discussion around what the new building should look like and how reflective it should be of the surrounding area's period of significance. So enter the preservation commissions, the housing activists, concerned citizens, design advocates, the YIMBYs, NIMBYs, city leaders and staff. And so many other people who have differing positions on how we build new buildings and old places. Many cities, of course, are blanketed with zoning codes and overlay districts, historic districts, as well as uh, carefully managed discretionary processes and other procedural tools that are intended to ensure new development fits in. But some housing advocates are saying we have gone too far in a time of extreme housing scarcity and out-of-control rents, and that assurance of a great-looking building is a luxury that we don't have the privilege of waiting for anymore. Surprisingly, it seems that we have this unlikely alliance between the housing activists and the Yimby types for guests in my backyard. So Kevin, one of the reasons I wanted to bring you into this conversation is because I feel like you're someone who has a really good perspective on the complexity of how communities evolve, as well as the competing interests that play into a lot of our older places, especially when it comes to design of new buildings. Um, You're also a designer. And like myself, you probably understand the defensive reaction that a lot of people get when new development is proposed. So I'm kind of curious about high level what your perspective was when reading this article, because they brought so many perspectives into it. Um, And and I agree that the affordability 
um, issue is a huge problem. As articles like this go, this was one of the better ones that I've read, you know, that really uh, brought in a lot of different perspectives and nuance to the to the conversation, uh, because this is a really difficult and uh, very complicated subject. I was joking with somebody the other day that if you had told me when I was in architecture school that I would have spent so much time in my career working on issues related to zoning, uh, I probably would have chosen a completely different career path um, <laughs> because it, I never would have had any, any idea it would be such a big part of my life. But but it really is. And, and you know, the legal aspects of zoning and the development process have such an enormous impact on what we see around us. So this was good. It also touched on just some of the human nature side of things. I think one of the, the frustrations that I have sometimes when people criticize uh, the NIMBY mindset, which, you know, I have been prone to criticize myself and, and it deserves it, but it kind of fails to understand that there's, you know, if you give people an opportunity to say no, they're more than likely to say no, because fear of the unknown is often greater than fear of the known. The piece did a really good job of capturing the fact that we have, in fact, had uh, decades where we had a lot of change in our cities and the outcomes were really bad and they were often very ugly. It's not insane for people to react against that and say they don't want more of it. Uh, now, it, the problem is it produces all these other negative consequences that it talks about in the article as well. Um, but you know, th these are really challenging, difficult topics. And I think overall, the article did a, did a pretty good job of handling it. Kevin and I have gotten to know each other through the Congress for the New Urbanism. And it's fascinating because that group started as a group of architects. And there still is a strain, I think of the dominant strain in New Urbanism is what non-architects would call like architecture snobbery. But, you know, I think kindly is this like passion for this certain uh, set of ideals in terms of architecture that I tend to think are quite important. It's very interesting because my first kind of foray into understanding the nuances of architecture was in listening to these ridiculously intelligent people who do tend to at sometimes come across as architect snobs, debate the nuances of different types of cornice and different types of, of uh, trims around windows. I remember them, someone uh, making fun of the shutters on windows that weren't the right size to actually shut the windows. And then why would we have those in certain climates where they don't have, don't need shutters. And I remember going back to my, my neighborhood and looking around and going, well, okay, I never noticed that before. Like it didn't even occur to me. And now I grasp it. There's something in this article that I think I was attuned to because of these debates at the New Urbanism. And I'll just read my favorite quote from this article. It says, something happened in the culture of architecture and design, which went from a system that was unregulated but consistently producing things that are good to one that is heavily regulated but still turns out crappy buildings. And then it goes on to say, like, the person looks around and says, you know, as a follow-up, I don't know that laissez-faire would get you better results. And I, I do think that there's something true today. And I, it's elusive to me because I'm not part of this world. Like I don't have an architecture degree. I'm not well-versed in this the way that deep architects are. But it seems to me that there's a fault line within architecture and the architectural community about what makes a good building. 
I tend to really like the work that Ann Sussman and Justin Hollander have done, where they talk about what types of buildings the typical person will find like inviting to their eye. Where do they look when, at a building? Where does a, how do they interact with it? What, what is their emotions and psychology? And, and basically what you find is that the plain vanilla background kind of buildings that we built for thousands of years around the world are actually very comforting to us as human beings, as a species. When you get into these things where like the building spins and rotates and has all kinds of weird architectural things and different roof lines and framings, and it tends to create this disorientation amongst humans that we can actually measure. The problem is the very standard vanilla building is boring. And the other one is kind of fun and funky to build. And, and to me, there does seem to be something kind of broken at the heart of architecture where it does seem to be serving itself more than it seems to be serving humans. And, and, and I think that as a profession, that that is a deep flaw. That's the quote, first of all, that I went to first and I thought was so interesting. As someone who lives in a neighborhood that predates zoning, it is something that I'm interested in is better understanding how did it work. <laughs> I think part of it is is the fact that they were a different people. They had different skills, different cultural norms, different expectations. The practice was completely different back then. And the way markets worked were different too, just in terms of getting materials and things like that. The whole building construction industry is not the same today as it was back then. And I completely agree that the idea that you have to be some genius designer to build a building that contributes to the general aesthetic of a community is is kind of silly to me because great places are rarely great because every building just so happens to be designed by the best architect in town. That's just not true, not the case. There's plenty of great places where a lot of the buildings are kind of modest buildings and you have a few iconic buildings um, and those, you know, in old places, they tend to be things like churches or interesting corner buildings. Um, Kevin, I know we've talked about this a little bit. I'm curious what your thoughts are on on this idea that you know maybe with regulations we've actually we've actually been trying to to regulate our way into better design when really it might be part of the problem might be just the the way we we pr approach architectural design in general. Well, I think there's kind of two things that I would say is you know the first thing is that both those quotes resonated with me too, and I think they were right on the money and. It's important to remember that we destroyed that culture of building on purpose. You know, like that was the entire point of the modern movement in architecture was literally to destroy the the older traditions of how we'd built cities. I mean, I read all of this when I was in architecture school and and I was, you know, probably one of those architecture students who was gung-ho for it at the time and thought this was great. Um, but that was literally out, out the with point. the old. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and, <laughs> uh, and it's also the reality is most normal people really hate that and they hate what it's produced. Non-architects uh, hate what it's produced. But he's also right that if we just went to sort of a laissez-faire system today, you would still probably see a lot of the same physical results that we see on the ground because the entire culture and process of how we design and build things is, is completely different than it was 100 or 150 years ago or more. One thing I, I hope we could talk a little bit about, if I could take a little different tack, another one of the aspects of this is, is 
is really not so much the the code. We focus a lot on the codes and the and the specific regulations themselves, but but we rarely talk as much about the process through which everything is filtered through. I think one of the uh, great innovations in the new urbanism era was something that was called the town architect process, and. The short version of what that was, whenever a new town was developed, there basically was a code written for it that was fairly simple for design. And then there was a single person that was basically responsible for the implementation and review of that at the design level. And that person uh, had a very flexible relationship and a direct relationship with people building things in the neighborhood. And I always thought that was a genius process that really cut through a lot of the bureaucracy and inertia to build really great places. And I've often wondered how we could do something similar on the public side, because really what we've done is we've taken a lot of our great intentions and forced them into regulations in a very centralized system, a very top-down system that is very inflexible and very slow moving and very expensive to navigate. But if we could find ways to decentralize things and make them more accountable at the like the neighborhood or district level and have sort of specific individuals, the the actual code can be flexible or inflexible, but you have a person that you deal directly with to build whatever you're building. There is a genius in that process that we could learn from better on the public side that is beyond just what the code itself is. I think that is a fascinating idea because one of the things that I get hung up with a lot is that we spend so much time simplifying these zoning codes and just trying to make them so basically you don't need an attorney to interpret them. But that's kind of half the battle. If there's not a staff that understands how to implement a code or knows how to review applications in in the way that aligns with a new code it's it, it's almost useless like you need to have a really a really good you know city staff or somebody who understands how to implement this stuff in order to be effective in a code i wish that the perfect zoning code would like cure you know all of the problems of the world but unfortunately that's not the case and it, you're not necessarily going to regulate great design into existence can i give a bad analogy yeah i feel like what has happened is that we all understand or we we all kind of intuitively understand that when you go to a wedding the bride is wearing the fanciest dress right like the bride is wearing the the nicest dress and all the attention in the wedding is on the bride that we all kind of culturally get that and understand that. And it's almost like architects got that for long, long periods of time. Like the bride gets it. And the bride in the city might have been the church in the center of town. It might have been, you know, the, the theater. It might have been something like that. But we all got it. Like the bride gets all the attention. And everyone else is kind of like a compliment to that. And you do dress up nice and you do wear nice clothes. You don't want to be the person there in ripped jeans and an old t-shirt. You, you want to be respectful of everybody around you and dress nice. But you're also not showing up in Lady Gaga's meat suit because, you know, you don't want to be the distraction from the bride, right? Speak for yourself, Chuck. Well, I, I feel like what happened in architecture, and this is this is where my analogy may get a little tortured. Kevin, you can push back. But I feel like at some point in architects, we decided that like the goal was to outcompete the bride. 
And like everybody wanted to show up at the wedding as like the event themselves. So I'm going to wear Lady Gaga's meat dress. I'm going to come with, you know, flashing lights and what have you on my dress. I'm going to come with something, you know, that like I'm going to stand out. So when we get to the wedding, like people will be looking at me, not just at the bride. And we labeled this advancement, like progress, individual, like we're, this is uh, the mar- this is the marketplace responding and it's creativity and all that. And then someone showed up and said, you know what? It's really kind of nice if at the wedding there's a bride and the bride is, gets all the attention and it's really good and everybody else kind of, and then they like, well, you, you know, that's what like the guys around Hitler used to say. So that's fascism and, and Trump kind of <laughs> liked that too. And so we can't do that anymore. Like there's something wrong with that. And, and all of a sudden we've gotten to the point where the debate over whether buildings and neighborhoods should be coherent and essentially uh, have like respect for their neighbors and fit in just as like a matter of course has become this weird thing where now we have to have, instead of the wedding planner, who's going to like check out your clothes and say like, yeah, yeah, you fit in. You don't know, like, please don't wear that. We actually have like a thick book that everybody has to read before they go to the wedding. Like you want to have a dress. Well, it can only be this size and this way. And then you got to go through these five committees to get your dress approved so that it doesn't outshine the bride, but that also fits in and you get your creativity and then everybody fights over it. I feel like what we have done is we've replaced kind of common knowledge and common, I want to say common sense, but I, I think that that's maybe the wrong way to phrase it. But like a, a shared understanding of what building a city was, was something that is really hyper, I think in my frame, I would almost say selfish or individualistic. And I, I don't think that's exactly the right way to put it, but I, I feel like that's how it's kind of manifest. Well, I think the article made a good point of really describing how we, we've ended up with these systems that makes nobody happy. Architects don't like it. Residents often don't like it. City staff and city uh, volunteer, commission volunteers don't really like it and find it very confusing. We've tended to add more layers to the cake with every passing uh, decade to where we have these processes that really serve nobody very well. You know, it's a great time to rethink all of it, but it's also good to you know, I think also, as the article mentioned, understand that beauty in our in in our world and in in our environment is it is important. It's important to human beings to care about having beautiful things around us and to strive for beauty as much as we can. And we can't always achieve that. And you certainly can't code that. But to deny that uh, can also get you the opposite thing. I, I sometimes can't help but thinking when I read these and, and even a lot of Yimby, uh, dialogue, which I'm generally leans towards, but a, a lot of that makes me fear that we're going to head back towards like the fifties and sixties again, where in the name of just expediency and doing anything, we are going to build just incredible ugliness uh, in our world. Um, and that's also not a good outcome. The idea that you can't have varying quality of architecture and, and still have a good place it makes me feel very skeptical. And I think a lot of the resistance to new architecture or change in kind of the aesthetic palette comes from kind of that idea. And it seems to be a little bit rooted in a misunderstanding between the difference between architectural building style and just plain old urbanism. My own observation in my own neighborhood has been that that you can have good urbanism and you can also have a really broad variety of architectural styles and it doesn't necessarily have to be consistent. 
in the place that I live, I think we probably have every era of architecture sprinkled into a traditional 1980s fabric. And that's okay. <laughs> it's it's interesting to me that that's not okay in so many places. And we really layer on a lot of rules and complexity in order to try to preserve the aesthetic of a place. And, and we don't feel open-minded to integrating a new aesthetic. And I do agree with you, Kevin, at the same time, just opening things up to expediency. I very much don't trust that that is going to necessarily mean that we will have beautiful places you know, maybe we need better architects. I don't know. <laughs> I was going to say, though, I, I do feel like Kevin's concept of the town architect is really, to me, like the way out of this. Um, you know, you, you create, like you look at your neighborhood, Abby. I think that we could go into your neighborhood and you could, working with a, a good architect, create a style guide, create a pattern book, and basically create like, uh, if, if you're building in this style in this neighborhood, go for it, like do it, like it, it'll work out. And, and, and I think, you know, you wouldn't be, because of the way our, our public process has evolved, you wouldn't necessarily give that person like absolute authority. But what you would say is, uh, basically you walk in the door as a developer or as someone who's building a place, you can go through door a and deal with the town architect and the town architect has a style guide and a pattern book and they'll work with you and make sure that what you build fits the thing. And if you can meet the, the, the town architect, you're approved. Good. Go. Um, or you can go through this design review process with the historic review panel and the neighborhood commenting, and we'll go through that. And, and to me that what that creates is like a, a lower friction process to get good outcomes. And then we judge the town architect. I mean, if we go through a year and we're like, you know, town architect like that, we didn't like that. Like that didn't work. Maybe we fire that person and bring in a new town architect, or maybe they modify the style guide or some way. It, to me, there has to be a way for us. And I, I think that that is a, a, a good kind of compromise approach to get the process moving again, while still giving people in a neighborhood reassurance that the stuff we build is not going to be crappy. Yeah, I think, you know, when the city planning uh, movement was founded, it was not founded with the idea that these commissions would be reviewing paint colors and fence styles on, you know, every building in town. Um, so uh, it's or quite more frankly, back to that. that it would be your neighbor doing it. Right. right? Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> like, I mean, I do think we try not to be elitist here, but but th there is certain professionalism, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You know, to borrow some of the insights from my colleague, Chris Brewster, and, and you'll like this, but he oftentimes compares this with the simple rules of music. Um, I just pulled up an article that this reminded me of where he kind of talks about about the fact that we should really be borrowing the this idea that cities are complex systems just like music is and that we could take kind of simple rules of music like notes chords harmony and rhythm and produce a lot of great complexity out of that and that does sound like the basic idea of having a town architect in a simple pattern book we can just take things that that are patterns and apply them and again, part of it is having a good town architect and then having a good architect <laughs> design. It is challenging, I think, though, that we have a lot of zoning zoning rules. We have processes that are so institutionalized that I think realistically doing something like this may need to happen at almost a neighborhood level, like as a pilot program, just to try something new because it can be very difficult for cities to really upend their processes like that. Yeah, I think 
you know, one quick example I'd share, this was not really a town architect process, but the, the best we could do at the time, we wrote a form-based code for uh, Blue Springs, Missouri, uh, which Abby would know is just a, a suburb of east of Kansas City. And it was just for their downtown area. And we were able, as part of setting up the code, was we wanted to change the process too. And so previous to the code, anything would have gone through the normal city planning commission. We set up a separate downtown review board just for that code, uh, specific to who those people were. And they had uh, like 10 and 14 day review deadlines for each step in the process. It was very clear and simple as a way to say, here's these standards that we've mapped out. Here is the the small group of people who only care about this part of town that they're going to review and really make sure that things are expedited in that manner. And it was remarkable because it was one of the few times I've seen where a city planning commission willingly gave up some authority to another body. So I think it's possible. I just think we have to think a little differently about how these things are structured in, in our cities. It's fascinating. For the first time, I think we solved the problem. <laughs> yeah. Well, if we can free up good architects from having to do like, you know, the, the stormwater area between Target and Arby's uh, and actually give them like redeeming work to do, uh, it would be wonderful. You know, yeah. I, I, I do feel like so much of our architectural talent is wasted on our development pattern today. And and a lot of times what we see is overcompensation, I think, for like the fact that I had to spend the first 10 years of my career designing strip mall facades, you know. I'm sorry to hear that. <laughs> I didn't have to do that. But I, I think, you know, a, a lot of architects that I meet, they're like, I'm in purgatory. I'm designing the engineering firm I used to work in, the big innovation they had. Uh, in architecture was they designed a silo uh, structure on the front of the fleet farm big box stores. So that's their, that's their like marquee thing. Now, if you go to a fleet farm, it's going to have a silo out front that looks like a, you know, a, a, a short stout version of a, a grain silo in front of a fleet farm store. So then, you know, you reached, uh, you know, shopping paradise. Yeah. Maybe not what they were picturing in architecture school. Just no, like Kevin not picturing the zoning code yeah. reading. Yeah. Free architects. <laughs> yeah. We should free the architects to do good work. <laughs> well, I think that's all the time we have for today, but before we conclude, it is time for the down zone, which is the part of the show where we can share anything that we have been reading, watching, listening to, or anything interesting going on with our life. I'm going to put you on the spot, Kevin. What have you been up to? Um, I've really been immersed, really, over the last year in a lot of uh, World War II types of uh, stories. And uh, so I just finished two Eric Larson books. Um, Eric Larson wrote uh, Devil in the White City. He also wrote a couple books, one called In the Garden of Beasts and one called The Splendid and the Vile that I just finished. Both really fascinating and gripping reads. Um, the first one, uh, In the Garden of Beasts, was a really incredible story about the, the American uh, ambassador to Germany who took the position in 1933 and was there basically to watch every step of the way as Hitler uh, consolidated power and laid the groundwork for what was to come. Um, just a, a, a stunning book. And then uh, The Splendid and the Vile was really all about the Blitz uh, in, in England. And again, just incredible to read the day-to-day -day life uh, of people uh, enduring nine months of bombing 
just hard to, fa- almost incredible to try to fathom what that was like, but just a, a, an amazing story. So I've been, I've been deep into some darker subjects lately. <laughs> Fascinating. Chuck, what have you been reading or uh, doing? In the Garden of the Beast is incre- incredible, really good. Um, I, I circled back to that Great Courses book series I went on, the story of human language. I took a couple of weeks off at, at the end of uh, at the end of Lent, and now I've kind of circled back, and it's it's so fascinating. I mean, I really am enjoying John McWhorter and his lectures. Uh, he just it's fascinating how he talks about um, you know in the last couple of lessons about how languages stop evolving or slow down evolving once they're written. And when they're spoken, they're much more fluid and much more fascinating. And I, I, this makes me kind of sad because, you know, I love the excitement of having different dialects and different uh, ways of communicating. Um, I also, and I, I think it was you, Abby, and it might have been Joe Minicozzi too, who told me that I had to watch Breaking Bad. And I started it and I was not like, you know, I was like, okay. And then I got into it. And I got to tell you, I watched the last three episodes this week. Wow, that that was very good. I always judge something by like, is it good if I'm thinking about it the next day? That was yeah. something that was really good. And I've I've been thinking about the ending all day. And I'm like, this that was a very, very good series. Five seasons on Netflix. And I'm just grateful for the people who told me to watch it because it was very good. So you finished the whole thing? I finished the whole thing. Yeah. No way. Well, How I've been watching for like it? oh, like three months or something. I mean, I've been <laughs> okay. watching for. <laughs> I sat down yesterday and watched five seasons. No, it's been. I feel months. like it was just yesterday we were talking about that. Yeah. yeah I, well, when I rewatched it, it was like three weeks, and I felt really bad about myself. Oh yeah, I took a little bit longer than that. I I <laughs> I, I can't do that much. <laughs> Yeah. Amazing show. I'm so glad to hear that you watched it. Yeah, that's a good one. Well, so today I actually started reading a book and I've gotten through, well, I'm listening to it and I've gotten through a couple of chapters now of Jeff Speck's book, Walkable City, which I'm sure you guys have both read. Is it on your bookshelf? Yeah, I was turning around to grab it off the bookshelf. Oh, I have Walkable City rules here. (laughs) For people listening, I can see Chuck. (laughs) Yeah, I've got the I've got the the follow up to Walkable City, but Walkable City is like fantastic. Yeah. Yes, it is fantastic. It's a book that I kind of feel bad. Sorry to Jeff Speck I, that I hadn't read it yet, and I feel like everyone I know has read it. So I was like, I should probably take a moment to read this, and it is really really good. It's um, not only a heaping dose of confirmation bias, <laughs> but I think it's a really good mixture of like academic studies and real world examples of just why like walkability is so important to cities. And it's just the the fundamental driver of what makes places really successful. And um, yeah, just really, really great piece of work. It's a very accessible book. And I, I, it's one of those that I feel like I can recommend to city council members all over the place, because if you're like, why is walkability important? Well, here it is. And, and, and it's well-written and well-researched. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think it's actually, that's how I feel about your book too, Chuck, that it's just very accessible. It's easy for people to understand. You don't have to get a planning degree to understand it. It's one of the things, you know, I love Jane Jacobs and I love her books and, but, but her books are very academic and can be difficult to understand, um, even for people who do have a planning background. So I appreciate 
books when they're very straightforward and I could recommend it to somebody who has no idea what planning is. <laughs> well, we record these on Friday um, and they come out on Wednesday. Uh, on Monday, this coming Monday, we are announcing. So it will be after this is out. So two days ago, when you're listening to this, uh, we announced the next uh, book in the series. So Confessions of a Recovering Engineer is coming out September 8th. And you can actually go to confessions.engineer is the website and uh, and learn more information about that. So the next, the follow-up to Strong Towns, A Bottom-Up Revolution will be a book about transportation. Yeah, Terrific. I'm so excited to read that. <laughs> Very timely. Yeah, yeah it's going to be a good one. Um, by the way, are you doing a book tour? Absolutely. In fact, that information on how to sign up for the book tour will be at confessions.engineer. And <laughs> I'm, I am... Uh, very confident that Kansas City will be one of the stops in that because I got to see you guys. Yeah, it better be. You yeah, do no definitely doubt. have to go to Kansas City. By the way, we didn't plan this, so you got no, a little we didn't promo plan today. This. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's all good. Well, thank you both for taking some time to chat with me today. And thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of UpZoned. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Thanks, guys. Hey, thank you. Thank you.